Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This bonus episode of The Bell Tell was produced by our sister podcast, The Endo Daily. Just a quick warning. Today's podcast contains references to sexual violence. Maria Cahill grew up in a world controlled by the IRA. When she was a teenager, the IRA forced her to meet the man she'd accused of rape and told her to keep quiet about it. But in January 2010, she would break that silence. My mum came up and asked me, outright, what's wrong, Maria? Has anybody touched you? And I had been told that I wasn't allowed to tell anybody by the IRA what had been going on. And I had to look at my mummy and, and I shook my head and turned around. In the decades since she spoke out, Maria Cahill has watched her personal story become a political debate. Described as a refugee of Sinn Féin, she is now preparing to watch that party come to power in the South. She paid a high price for speaking out, but now, all these years later, would Maria Cahill do it all again? I could see my father crumble, you know, the, the hurt on his face was horrendous. Um, and I, as long as I live, that image will never leave me. And I never want to see that again. I'm Ellen Coyne, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Maria Cahill, the author of a new book, Rough Beast, My Story and the Reality of Sinn Féin, to talk about power, politics, and the possibility of Taoiseach Mary Lou MacDonald. So Maria, this book dives right into what I've heard you describe as the cult of community in West Belfast in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, you go through in vivid and sometimes horrifying detail the toll of speaking out. But I'm struck that at the start, you described growing up in a Republican family, having family members in the IRA, remembering seeing Jerry Adams in your grandmother's kitchen. When you spoke out, did you ever feel like you were being exiled from a tribe? Certainly there is isolation in speaking out, you know, not just me, but I think it's proven over and over. If you do 
any hint of criticism whatsoever, you then become a pariah. And I think that movement, I mean, the, the Republican movement is a phrase which describes it to a T. It moves as one. Mm. And the title of the book, Rough Beast, is taken from a W.B. Yeats poem, The Second Coming. And that poem describes this rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. So with that in mind, not only the connotations in rape in terms of the title, but also this movement slouching towards the Doyle really has been kind of creeping up year on year in terms of support. And now it's at a phenomenal level. I think that becomes more dangerous for people like me. Mm -hmm. Not because I don't think that people have the right to vote for them. I do. And I, you know, I said last night at the, the book launch, their vote counts as much as anybody else's. Um, that's what happens in a democracy. But what is undemocratic is how the movement as a whole responds to people like me mm -hmm. who become collateral damage then, if you like, you know, who get stomped on from a very great height. And I, it has taken until yesterday to get some level of movement from Republicans and from Mary Lou MacDonald in particular in relation to a kind of acceptance that there was an IRA investigation. If you look at what she said yesterday, I think that there has been a, a bit of a shift in terms of how they've approached this issue over the last number of years. I think she essentially said that what had happened to you wouldn't happen today. And I think she also said that, you know, she, she wished you well. Um, what was your reaction to those comments? It's very good of her, isn't it? I mean, she wishes me well. I think anybody could read the book. And if they do read the book, they'll find a very detailed account of how Mary Lou MacDonald conducted herself mm. over this issue, for good or ill. Um, you know, and I, I'm quite happy for people to read it and to make their own minds up as to whether they think it was acceptable or not. I happen to think not, but I'm the person at the receiving end of how the Sinn Féin party have treated me. So if we go back to 2010, when Jerry Adams was telling the media that he felt that two men that I had named in relation to the IRA investigation side of things, Jerry Adams said he felt they had been, quote, grievously wronged. Mm -hmm. We fast forward then through a four-year court case, which eventually collapsed, where everyone denied charges and all were found not guilty, to be fair. In 2014, I waive anonymity. And I tell people that it's not just me, there are other cases of sex abuse out there. And Jerry Adams takes a week and then he writes a blog saying that the IRA dealt with sex offenders. And at that point in time, Mary Lou MacDonald was asked a question on News Talk and she was asked whether she believed that the IRA uh, members who volunteered were decent people. And she said she thought they were decent people, yeah. Mary Lou MacDonald from 2014 to now, I think it's nine years since I waived an anonymity coming up in October for nine years, I have never heard Mary Lou MacDonald ever say that she accepted that there was an IRA investigation into my abuse. Now, I think she needs to do that. I think as the leader of a political party, it probably behoves her to do that, given the fact that some of those meetings took place in Sinn Féin offices. That makes the party corporately responsible. And she's the figurehead for that party. So, you know, who else am I going to go to to ask publicly to acknowledge that? I think that's what she needs to do. I don't really care whether she wishes me well or not. It doesn't really impact on my life. What does is my integrity in terms of being having people recognise that this happened so that it never happens again. They're saying that no organisation should investigate this other than the police. I welcome that. But they need to actually spell out who did, yeah. quote, investigate it. And they haven't done that. 
And I think talking about Mary Lou MacDonald is very relevant because for a lot of the time that Sinn Féin were responding to you and coming down very hard on you, she was the deputy leader. And I was really interested in a comment that you made at your book launch in Dublin where you talked about funded feminists, Mm -hmm. feminist groups that maybe were very supportive of you when you first came out, but who will, as you put it, I think, gladly be posing next to Mary Lou MacDonald come the next election. I'm interested in finding out what you mean about that and also what it's like for you to watch Mary Lou MacDonald garner this radical feminist image where she's held up by a lot of feminist organisations and by a lot of women voters as this very feminist trailblazing figure, given your experience with her. She may well claim that she's a feminist and it is not for me to say whether I believe her, to to take a play on words of Michelle O'Neill. But I think if you read my book, you can make your own mind up as to where she stands in terms of uh, my issue once I waived anonymity. That, that's all I would like people to do. Pick up the book and read exactly how she behaved, what statements she gave out publicly. In relation to the funded feminists, it's a line that I used before and I saw it on a separate issue, well actually on a kindred issue in relation to myself with the National Women's Council who did put out a statement uh, supportive of me in October 2014 after I told them I was going to meet the Taoiseach and they then asked me would I raise the issue of resources with the Taoiseach and I agreed to do it then. Sorry, the resources for them? Um, for the issue in, in the round and I was happy to do that with all of the politicians that I met. And then it came to the 2016 election where they platformed party leaders in relation to their website and they had a piece on on their website from Jerry Adams, which I took objection to, which was about violence against women and girls. And given the fact of Jerry's difficulty over the Liam Adams case and his difficulty over my case and what he knew and when, I didn't think that he was the most appropriate person to be platformed on the National Women's Council website. And I told them and they stood over it by saying that they'd given a platform to every party leader that didn't watch with me. And we then had the subsequent issue of, well, look, there are photographs over the years where people pose with politicians. They're perfectly entitled to do so. But I'd like the National Women's Council to read this book and come back to me and tell me that at a rally where they didn't invite Fianna Foyle or Fine Gael reps to speak on the issue, they did have Mary Lou MacDonald. And I think that caused an awful lot of hurt At the time, I also think that it behoves people to be sensitive in their approach to things. And I don't think that she was particularly sensitive when it came to my case. And therefore, I don't think she should be afforded a platform and anything to do with women's rights until until she deals properly with this. And by dealing properly with it means not to be just spiffing out platitudes about wishing me well. It doesn't actually mean anything to me. You describe in the book the really brutal reaction when you first waived your anonymity in 2014. People were accusing you of being a British spy. There was a particularly rancid blog that described your rape as a consensual affair between a then 16-year-old girl and uh, an older man in a position of power. And a lot of people turned a blind eye to that because it suited their politics at the time. This was pre-Me Too. Do you think that anything would be different now or do you think the might of the IRA and the might of Sinn Féin would mean that a lot of that that abuse would still be coming your way if you had just spoken out today? Well, in the last chapter of the book, I came to the conclusion that I didn't think it would be as bad post Me Too, had I waived anonymity post the Me Too movement. 
because I waived it before it in 2014. And it was horrendous, you know. I mean, I used to joke more MFI than MI5, you know. I was absolutely skint at the point in time when I went public. Like, I hadn't 2D to run, rub together. And I was travelling up and down to Dublin. Like, I remember even having to borrow. I shouldn't probably be saying this. But my child was in, in daycare at the time and I had to borrow money, like, to get through to the end of the month because I was spending it running around Dublin beating politicians, you know. So uh, if only, <laughs> you know, someone was firing wads of in my direction um, but look I mean that's a kind of lighthearted way of deflecting your question the abuse was horrendous the blog that you refer to I later found out who wrote it it was a man from East Belfast um, and it said that I had enticed my rapist with my virginity and that was the level that we had sunk to and that was absolutely appalling and it was shared at the time by one of the people who were involved in the IRA investigation into my case who later then said he'd shared it and hadn't read it um, to be fair to Mary Lou MacDonald, she did um, condemn that particular blog. And I, to be fair to her, I've included that in the book. But I've also documented other instances. And what I've done is I've deliberately kept the names of most mm-hmm. of those people out of it for two reasons. One, I didn't want to give them the oxygen. And two, I hope they have changed. And actually, I wish I had brought my phone in here because a message came through to me this morning. And it was from a man with a Twitter account who had given me serious abuse over a long period of time. He'd publicly posted that I wasn't raped, that I was a liar, yada, yada, yada. And he came back this morning after reading the book and said, I'm really sorry. I didn't realise the impact that all of this had on you. I totally believe you. And there you go. And I wrote back, thank you. I appreciate it. Because, you know, someone has had the, the guts to admit that they were in the wrong, I suppose. It's unfortunate that you're at the wrong end of it. But I thought that that abuse wouldn't be as bad post Me Too. And then I've had a look at the last week or so. So publication day was Thursday and I woke up and I had hundreds and I mean hundreds of fake Facebook bot accounts assaulting my messages and my comments. So I've had this every day, at least 500 or 600 accounts that are just constantly messaging, which means that I can't get to the real messages from abuse victims who are actually affected by this story, who are then messaging me through. There is a general election coming up this year and... I would imagine that a lot of writing this book was important to tell your story yourself and to get it out there. But is there a part of it that is trying to speak to that new generation of voters, people voting for the first time who would have been a child when your story first came out? And are you trying to appeal to them to consider their electoral choices more carefully? No, I think I'm trying to appeal to the human side of people in terms of human nature when they read the book. I mean, I think people are appalled by it. I was asked to write a different book And had I really wanted to damage the Sinn Féin party's electoral successes, I would have written the other book that I was asked to write because it was asking for a political analysis of Sinn Féin from its inception right through to the present day. And I think there are very, very damaging things and and secrets that I well know about that party yet to have a light shone upon them. So I could have written that book. And in fact, I was 80,000 words into the, the book that I was asked to write before I thought, no, actually, I need to write this book. And the reason that I need to write this one was because it would have been a betrayal of myself, I think, had I not put my own story down for the record. I was really struck in the early part of the book when you're describing how you were introduced to the youth wing of Sinn Féin and you mentioned Owner Bryn. I just thought it was an interesting parallel and I wonder how you feel in those years since you went public to watch 
a lot of people would credit Owner Bryn with bringing a whole new generation of people to Sinn Féin, people who have no connection to the mm-hmm. North, who aren't from Republican backgrounds and probably even aren't that moved by the prospect of a united Ireland. What does that feel like? Um, look, Owen is a always was and is an energetic guy with his own opinion and I will always probably have a bit of respect for him because he did have his own opinion. He was one of the very few that didn't go along with the herd. He always maintained that he wasn't getting the, the mainstream politics as an elected representative either back then when I knew him. So he has obviously gone on his own journey too. It's a, a long days from climbing the roof of the city hall to actually becoming a councillor and then a TD. But fair play to him. I met him during the, just after Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer released the report into my case. It was the same week as the marriage referendum and I met him outside the county and then we ended up doing a, a political programme together. And he came over and looked at me. I can't describe the look, but, you know, it it looked like he was sad about the state of affairs that we were in and he shook my hand, you know, and I bit my tongue uh, because I am by nature fairly polite about things. And he has pulled some trolls online who have been sending abuse in my direction. So I, I will give him credit for that. He was great crack to be around back then his politics or his politics. He may well end up leading the party himself someday. But equally, that's why it's so disappointing because I did have a good relationship with him at that time. He did bring me into the party. I find it hugely disappointing that Owen, we used to call him O'Brien and he'll know this, but that Owen couldn't go on the radio or the television and be the person to take responsibility for steering the party into where they should be on this issue. I think the book is a really useful thing because I feel like in all of the noise that followed what happened, the reaction from Sinn Féin, how you were treated publicly, how your credibility was questioned, people were casting aspersions on your your motives. I was struck by the idea that if you were a violent man, if you were a predator, if you wanted to be abusive towards women, the IRA must have been a bit of a gift to kind of give you that power over people. Well, any organisation, I think, and that's why we see scandals in large institutions and organisations, but particularly in Northern Ireland, conflict-related violence is something which probably wasn't actually properly recognised until the point in which I was going public. You know, I anecdotally was hearing stories of people who were in the RUC who, you know, were domestically abusing their partners at home. You know, loyalist paramilitaries, there there are very public cases of female violence against females. That's something that I look at in the book, that whole kind of juxtaposition of people are human beings and they're ordinary people, but then they become part of an entity, an army uh, in their eyes. And then they do some very inhumane, despicable things. Some of those despicable things were done behind closed doors. And yes, joining that entity gave people or afforded them a level of kudos, respect, protection that they would otherwise not have had. But in this case, with the Republican movement, it's been interesting for me because quite a lot of male victims have come forward. Mm-hmm. We've seen Potty McGahan, for example, wave his anonymity on the issue. There were other victims also. And I, again, two days ago, a male contacted me. He had already reported his case to the police to say that he had been abused in Belfast by a Republican and he was still dealing with the aftermath of it. 
Did you ever feel that when you spoke out, it, it was very clear to you at the start that what happened to you was not an isolated incident and also that there was other cases similar to yours. Did you ever feel that the response to you was as vicious as it was because someone was trying to make an example out of you and to deter other people from coming forward? One of the reasons that I went back into the house when the abuse was happening was because I thought I was the only person it was happening mm-hmm. to. And I thought in some warped way that because I already felt like damaged goods, that that by going back and staying on the sofa, another child wasn't on that sofa to be abused. And I took all of that guilt on and I carried that around for years. And it wasn't until then I waived anonymity and other people started trickling forward to me saying, oh, hold on, I know about this case. We know of one case where someone was working in youth clubs in Dundalk, for example, and in Belfast after people knew or at least suspected that he was a child abuser in a very well-known case. Um, Liam Adams, he's now dead. So... I was very conscious in terms of like I was feeling really guilty about all of this because I was taking responsibility for everything unfairly on board because I thought, well, if no one pushes this, who's going to? You know, how are we going to find out where these people are? Do they have access to children? I think that the Republican movement underestimated my staying power on this. And I had the staying power because I am very, very stubborn. But I was stubborn because I was so traumatised that I was not going to have anybody belittle or deny my experiences. But I think once it became a huge issue and Sinn Féin were already dealing with it badly, yes, I think there was an element of that. You know, now we'll just put out, let's not say Sinn Féin, let's say the Republican movement as a whole were putting out fright tactics everywhere. There were memos from Bobby Story, who's now deceased. There were punishment tweets. That's what it was like. Like I was trending. There was that much abuse on the internet. And I think, and that's why I say, always will say that Potty McGahan had a harder job in common public than I did because he saw how I was being treated and he knew there was a fair chance he'd be treated like that himself and he still waved anonymity. And he says that the reason that he did so was because he was so angry watching the Doyle debate and how I was being treated by the Sinn Féin party in that debate online and off and in the chamber. Apart from the the really distressing descriptions of sexual violence, which I think will stay with anyone who reads the book forever. Some of the most upsetting scenes in it are when you describe your parents' living room and the reaction of your mother and father having the IRA in their house. And I think your mother understanding quite clearly the damage that was done to you by forcing you into this botched investigation, by forcing you into a room with your alleged rapist. And you dedicate the book to them and you talk about the price that they have paid. Has it ever felt like the the price of speaking out has been maybe more than one person or one family can take? Not once did any of my parents say to me, don't speak. You know, not once did they say, don't write, don't give an interview. Um, and I think that's, it's a huge ask for a family unit whenever you go to them, and as I did in 2000, the end, tail end of 2009. I started 2010 and say, I'm putting this in the newspaper and then I'm making a police complaint because remember, they'd seen their daughter fall apart. My mother was had been sitting on the left hand side of me, but my father was standing up. So I had uh, an uncle on the right hand side of me and I had my cousin, a second cousin on the left hand side. But my dad was in my eyeline. So as my mum was flying across the room to hug me, I could see my father crumble. The hurt on his face was horrendous. As long as I live, that image will never leave me.
And I never want to see that again. And I think also I wouldn't want anybody to see anything like that. I think it was a horrendous thing for the IRA to do, to insist that my parents were told in the way in which they were. I think it was horrendous for them to effectively take over our entire family unit's lives. You know, the sense of entitlement and control was oozing out of the Republican movement at that point in time and we were effectively pawns in whatever, you know, game they were playing to the point where my father was told he couldn't even tell his own mother for a number of months. But all credit to to my parents, like I went in and said, this is what I'm doing and no one said, don't do it, think about it. You know, they said, well, if if that's what you need to do, we'll support you um, as long as you're okay." I'm not sure that everybody's parents would have the same response there. And like I wrote the book and I gave them both the opportunity to read the book before it went out because it must be a terrible place to be also, you know, when your child is writing a book like that and it's going out and other people are going to read it. It's their lives too. They'd have been well within their rights to say, Maria, please don't do that or don't put our details in the public domain or, or whatever. They didn't, you know, and I think that that's testament actually to the fact that even though it has damaged us probably beyond compare with anything else. There's a good strength there too, you know, they've come through it out the other end in their own individual ways. But it's too upsetting for them to read the the entire book and I get that completely, you know. One of the other parts in the book, which is heartbreaking for people, I think, is the fact that because um, after I went public, he couldn't get me on the, the telephone. My phone was constantly ringing with journalists. And it was, you know, every few days you were touching base and saying, Daddy, don't worry, things will be OK. And then this this story pops up where he had gone and stood outside Queen's University with a placard with other people saying, I support Maria. There, mm-hmm. Someone had organised a protest outside the gates. Mary Lou MacDonald was due to be speaking. She didn't turn up. Michelle Gildernew spoke in her place instead. And my father went along on a, a very cold, rainy night to stand, you know, with these people because he was so chuffed that they were showing support but he also needed an outlet to show it himself because he couldn't get a hold of me on on the telephone and he was watching my life play out in the media and he was also watching how the Sinn Féin party were treating me. So much of your life has been taken by this. Your innocence and your youth in your teenage years, your 20s were absolutely gruelling. I'm conscious that even, you know, your first pregnancy, those early years as a new mam, you were in the spotlight and you were getting vicious abuse. But you borrowed a phrase at your book launch and said that, you know, you hadn't and you haven't gone away. If you had your time over, would you do it all again? I normally would say absolutely. Um, Look, you've no way retrospectively of saying that you would do it all again, you know. But I will say this, I don't think I could have lived with myself had I not said anything. Had I Once I saw that on the Adams case, that was it for me, mm-hmm. you know, and that was a real trigger. Like I I, I had come through, and you're, you're saying about difficult years, I was kind of at the crossroads in my life. I didn't think it was worth living, you know, and I was just starting to put things together for myself. And that that was the irony of it, you know, things towards the end of that year were starting to look up. I was healthier, you know, um, I was in a job that I was enjoying doing. I had a good circle of friends around me and then I sat and watched this on the Adams programme and I went completely to pieces. And I think it just switched something. I went FUs. I cannot believe that there are other people that this has happened to. Naively, I thought that mine was the only case. I had no idea that across the city someone years earlier had been taken 
in their room to face her father, who had also abused her from the age of four. And there was a little detail about, in that case, about a packet of Mikado biscuits being on the table. And that triggered this little joke in the, the forced confrontation where um, one of the individuals joked about having smelly feet. And that, that was enough to just push me over the edge, you know. I think sometimes people within republicanism have different morals than the rest of us. And unfortunately, they're what they think is a struggle as an entity takes precedence over a young woman who was struggling already to cope with sexual abuse, who was then doubly struggling with the fact that she thought that that the people who had brought her into a room were going to kill her a few short years later. And that, for me, is absolutely disgraceful. That's not republicanism, and it should never be associated with republicanism. Well, Maria Kyle, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for talking to us about it. I'm Ellen Coyne, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll and Garrett Mulhall, researched by Dave Hanrity, with sound by Gavin Hennessy, and special thanks to Kieran Dunbar. Archive clips from Spotlight BBC, RTE, News Talk and Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.